Making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut d'Etudes Européennes of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on inequality and the European Union is a product of the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence EU Qualis and is co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Soldevila and I am your host. We can say without much hesitation that it is becoming more and more difficult to be optimistic about the future of our planet. Citizens are angry. Some have taken it to the European Court of Justice, others to museums, where they protest and show their dissatisfaction and despair. And they have good reasons to worry. We recently follow a, what we can call a lukewarm COP27 that has brought inequality to the center stage. A football World Cup in Qatar shown as the symbol of the anti-ecological way of life. A summer of forest fires and drought, a winter under the strains of an ongoing war and the energy crisis that it has provoked. Making sense of environmental and ecological justice and the role of the law and of citizen participation in it is not easy. That's why I'm really happy to welcome today Maria Lee, Professor of Law at the University College London and co-director of the UCL Center for Law and the Environment, and our very own Chiara Armeni, Professor of Environmental Law and member of the Center for European Law at the ULB. Welcome to Making Sense of EU to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, uh, Professor Lee, for joining us from the UK. You recently gave a lecture at the ULB on environmental justice and public participation and the role of the law in connecting the two. Could you please explain from the point of view of your research what environmental and ecological justice is? What is it that we're talking about? What does it look like concretely? Environmental justice might be about unjust or unfair burdens in an environmental sense, so unfair or unjust burdens of pollution or the impacts of climate change. It might be about unjust access to environmental benefits um, like green space. And that side of justice is also seen in the benefits that we reap from um, the activities that lead to environmental harm. So the three of us have had more benefits from the activities that are changing our climate than some of the people who are suffering the worst impacts of them at the moment. So that's really what environmental justice is, but it's also much more than that. And the issues that Chiara and I have been working on in particular are more about procedural justice, so about whether we have an equal say in the shaping of our world. Participation is about more than that. You're not very likely to get fair distributions without fair processes. Um, and participation might also be about recognising the equal humanity of everybody involved. But essentially, I suppose my answer to the question is that justice is really complicated. Environmental justice is really complicated. But if we're interested in justice, we can't ignore the environment. We have asked some of our students if, as informed citizens, they feel it's easy for them to participate in environmental decisions. Let's hear Filippo Segato and Luisa Gambaro, both active in our student associations. I think it's a problem because 
me, the young generation, are not yet like in totally control of the world right now. Like we are still studying, we are still creating our life, I would say. And right now there is still the old generation that are doing the laws, they are taking action. And if we are able like to throw idea on the table, we are not still very able to put that in action. I think it's quite overwhelming also considering that we try to make little efforts, uh, maybe trying to eat less meat, trying to travel using less the plane. But when we see such events like the World uh, Football Cup, it, it's a bit overwhelming because it seems like all our tiny efforts do not really get uh, seen when such events are organized by states. So to come back to Filippo's uh, comment, there's a lot of frustration in the young genera younger generation about their ability to influence decisions. Participation is about putting ideas on the table. It is about sitting at that table, the decision-making table. And that doesn't ensure or guarantee that decisions will be shaped on the basis of those ideas. It is not a right to veto. However, what is underlying um, on, in the participatory uh, dilemma, if you like, is the fact that there will always be some powerful participants, some interests, some voices will always be heard first or in a more comprehensive way than others. And so there's always a question of uh, power, a question of um, injustice in this sense, where some groups, some interests, the economic interests, the strong actors will be heard, while other interests, including the youth, will struggle to be heard in the decision-making. So I completely agree that this could lead to frustrations and also to some sort of um, disengagement with participation. And you mentioned a key word, disengagement, that comes from sort of the disappointment of maybe expectations that are not handled in the right way. And, and maybe, Professor Lee, uh, Maria, you want to pitch in... Uh, how can we manage citizens' expectations, people that want to be part of the discussion but don't really know how? From what you've researched, what are the ways in which citizens can participate uh, in a better way that, that leads to more engagement instead of disengagement? And, and also, Chiara, for you. Okay, well, let's go back a step. So first of all, going back to Luisa's point about individual actions versus big collective actions. I think that we do need to focus on institutions, not individuals. It's very, very convenient for the powerful and for our established ways of doing things to make climate a responsibility for individuals, step by step, small steps. Um, actually, and that's why Kiara and I are interested in politics and in participation. Actually, it's about changing the way our institutions work. That's how we really make a difference, which is not to say that our own small actions aren't important because, of course, they are, um, but they're not enough. We must also focus on the institutions. And this, this word that, you, that you, you picked out of disengagement, so some of the work that Chiara and I have been doing over quite a few years um, should remind us that the very worst thing that government can do for trust and for political engagement is to say it's consulting people when it isn't. So I do think that the way that 
participation is mm-hmm. done is really very important. And I also think that law has a role to pay, play here. So law has a role to play in requiring as much as possible that decision makers pay conscientious attention to those who have participated in requiring decision makers to say exactly what is on the table, requiring decision makers to explain other decisions that fit in with what's going on at the moment. And it's more than just opening the doors and letting people see what's happening. It's about articulating the background to a decision. This leads me to my next question, which is about the relationship between participation and actually achieving this justice that that these communities of people are looking for. So you've been researching public participation, the two of you together are individually for a while. And it seems this participation does not always contribute to environmental justice. What does your research say about the ways in which citizens can participate? Because we've been, you've been already framing it a little bit and explaining it a little bit. What would be the most effective way to participate and benefit from existing legal provisions or requiring new provisions to exist in order for the participation to be efficient in a context where a technocratic approach is being privileged and, of course, we are surrounded both in in the EU and, to say, the UK separately now, too, the populist approaches that are part of the context. From the perspective of the participants, one of the things that a whole load of research over many, many years has demonstrated is that decision makers prefer to reason on the basis of technical expert information. In practice, what we see is that groups and communities who are able to draw on expertise, expertise in in decision-making as well as expertise on the science and whatever, those communities are more effectively able to participate. So it's kind of a translation exercise, (laughs) translating the citizens' worries and, and arguments into technical arguments. It, it partly a translation exercise, but it also transforms them. So if, for example, you're a legal expert and you're dealing with, you know, people who are worried about the view, well, you can engage with this question of view, but you might also be interested to know whether this project is going to interfere with legally protected rights. So you might want to think about what it does to birds because birds are well protected. You might think about air quality because air quality is well protected. So you do also transform those concerns. Yeah, you instrumentalize the things that are protected in law as a lawyer. So maybe it's not an approach of choosing between technical arguments and the citizens' worries. Maybe, Chiara, if you can jump in, maybe it's the two together. Absolutely. We, we do not claim for uh, moving away from expertise. We do need expertise, especially in complex matters such as climate change, planning, environmental protection in a wider sense. What we claim is that the contribution that is outside expertise, technical expertise in the way we, we in the way decision makers understand it, is a 
is an essential contribution to the reasoning and to the decision-making process. So the values, the references that um, communities have, their sense of place, the way they attach to a particular place that can come from a family attachment, historical attachment, cultural attachment, and that brings, you know, the global north and the global south together. We attach to spaces in different ways, but we do have those strong connection with places that are changed through decisions uh, that affect our environment. Those are values that contribute to decision-making. And you were making a good point about translation. We also need the other direction in translation. We need to translate the decision-making process towards the communities for them to understand where their concerns fit, how they value their, their expertise. They do have their expertise and experience that is valuable for this sort of decision. So we definitely need to combine both and the combination and the contribution of people's rationality and communities to expertise is vital. What is the impact of populism in government in this context? Because this is also something that you two have been studying. Well, if we go back, you raised technocratic and populist governments together. And I think that that um, is appropriate because I think from our perspective, they have a lot of things in common. So a technocratic approach to decision-making assumes that everything is reducible to a technical solution, okay? And a populist approach assumes that the people in government already know what the people want. Both of those approaches, and, you know, obviously there's a lot more we could say about them, but both of those approaches would tend to resist the sorts of processes that Chiara and I are talking about, the sorts of protections of public participation and public consultation. And essentially, they both seek to take the politics out of these decisions. Okay, you either take the politics out... And the people. Well, exactly. The politics and the people. Exactly, which is sort of ironic when you're thinking about a populist approach. But if they're taking the people and the politics out, there's no space for participation. And what Chiara and I um, have said in some of our work is that the politics will happen. You can't avoid politics. The politics is there. These decisions are political. And so what we're asking is, well, who do we think should do the politics and we would suggest that a, a democratic answer to that question is is the better one this tension between outcome and process is something that really we can see really in this tension between technocracy and populism and participation so the idea that for technocrats and populists what is important is delivering on the outcome while democratic participation takes time effort and the constant a conversation and questioning of multiple options where the process really becomes the key forum for it. This podcast, this first series of podcasts, is focusing on inequality and the European Union. So I would like to ask you, how does inequality in the EU manifest in your field? Inequality, we can say that it rhymes with injustice. How about in the ecological and environmental area? One area that is really important at the moment in thinking about inequalities is climate change. And Maria and I have been focusing on this for many years in different ways. But more and more, and especially at a European level, 
inequalities are also the result of climate mitigation and adaptation measures in themselves. So, for example, decarbonisation will lead to sacrifices in the fossil fuel industry and in the workforce. Carbon taxes can have a regressive effect. Energy efficiency standards in buildings and construction will affect the affordability of housing and will benefit the owners more than the tenants. Subsidies for renewable energy have an impact on energy prices and consumers, which is really at the centre of the policy debate at the moment. And incentives to support solar panels or electric vehicles could also benefit the rich more than the poor. So it's not just about big measures on climate change, it's also about the single impact on any particular climate change-related decisions. If you put this in the context of the EU just transition, it becomes a bigger, a bigger stake. Absolutely. The EU is aware and it's trying to tackle those issues with this mantra, with this new buzzword of the just transition. The EU is using a lot of its political and policy strength to construct a framework for justice within this net zero carbon target and the idea of becoming climate neutral by 2050. And it is all framed around the idea that we will redistribute resources and financially support those areas and those regions who are most vulnerable in the case of climate measures. But let us go back to participation. Because the question of using distributive framework to correct inequalities, to correct injustices, is problematic. For example, in the EU Just Transition Mechanism, we have opportunities to participate. So participation exists in principle, but the way it is constructed is around the usual suspects, the powerful participants, without giving enough time or enough resources for a wider set of participants to have their voice heard. But at the same time, citizens find a way of expressing their worries, their anger, their preoccupation. And I'd like to give the floor again to one of our students, Filippo Segato, who is worried about what we're seeing and the ways in which people and citizens are manifesting their anger towards climate inaction. I would like to ask to our expert your opinion about what is happening like right now, because, uh, I mean, I'm Italian, so I care about art a lot. And we see that like a lot of, of environmental, uh, I would say warrior, they say, but I would not collect them. Uh, they go to museum and they just show they do protests like throwing paint, uh, painting like to some famous uh, art pieces. So I'm like, which is your opinion about that? I think that the scope of legal rights should be broader. Okay, so I think the scope of legally permitted um, activism should be broader. I think that the individuals and groups and communities who commit acts of civil disobedience you know we've got a very very long history of their activities being an important part of the process of working towards justice 
I started the session today on a very grim, pessimistic note, but I hopefully will not leave the podcast on that same note. I'm wondering if we want to be optimistic, how do you see things evolving in this field? Do we have reasons to, besides being worried, also being hopeful? So the, the grounds for hope are in the activities of people like your students and the people in the museums and the fact that we have a really active civil society that wants to be involved in decision making. It's very hard to ignore these people. And so my hope is that the excitement that that generates combined with people like me looking at the quite mundane, boring technical rights in small bits of legislation can create a broader space for public engagement around environmental questions. A final word, Kira? Yeah, sure. And in our work, Marie and I have been focusing on the idea that we don't necessarily need more participation. It's not a question of quantity. It's a question of quality. It's a question of how we can make sure that those rights are taken seriously and the law matters in these areas, both for uh, substantive reasons in order to make sure that environmental outcomes are delivered through a wider set of contributions, but also for justice purposes to make sure that the vulnerable, the voiceless, those who feel that they're frustrated, they cannot be reflected in the institution, through the institution's work, are properly engaged and properly listened to. Thank you so much, Professor Maria Lee, Professor Chiara Armeni. I've learned a lot and I hope our audiences also improve their sense of what it means. We're trying here to make sense of environmental justice, a very, very complex topic as we have seen during the conversation. But I think we leave this conversation with a lot more clarity. And thank you to both of you for being part of the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Making sense of EU.